Today we're in Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. It uh, should be probably around the same spot in the Pew Bible, 1070, 1069, somewhere around there. King Herod of it <clears throat> heard of it for Jesus. Name had been known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why the miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I, be, uh, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it is Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you, up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. <clears throat> and the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oath and his, his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and looked and took his body and laid it in a tomb. You may be seated. You've heard the text. You may be thinking that has to be the most strange text to preach at a Christmas Eve service that I've ever heard. I mean, really, Matt, you couldn't have uh, picked, a, picked a better text to have on, on Christmas Eve, all the, the beheading and such, uh, that just doesn't really seem fitting this morning uh, with all the festivities and the celebration. But uh, if you're a guest with us and uh, you've not, or you've not been with us for a while, we're walking through Mark's gospel. And this morning, this is where God has us in the text. Uh, but it's not totally disconnected from our, our theme this morning. Uh, the Advent, the fourth week of Advent, and celebrating the peace that Christ offers us. I'll demonstrate, hopefully, how that is connected. Uh, but this morning, Peace Sunday, is what we're celebrating. We're celebrating the peace of Christ, that as our Prince of Peace, as the one who came to give his life for us, we can have peace, true peace in Christ. And so I usually don't name or title sermons, but because it's a special day, and to maybe try to help connect the dots a little bit for how it's not completely disconnected from our text, here we go. There's your title. A decaying conscience, conscious, conscience, the opposite of peace. All right, so there, there it is. Uh, and as followers of Jesus Christ, we know true and everlasting peace 
But as we'll see in our text, as you've already heard it read, those that don't know Jesus, those that are not believers and followers of Jesus Christ can't know true peace. Now, sure, you can experience as an unbeliever moments of peace, times when you're at peace, but not everlasting and eternal peace. And Herod is an example for us in the text of Mark for what it means to be peaceless. And so this morning, as we walk through the text this morning and trace the decay of his conscience, we'll see this morning missed opportunities that he had, opportunities that he had to, to change in his behavior and his actions that he didn't. Um, and this morning, we'll ask the Lord to teach us from Herod's wrong example uh, for our hearts, our conscience, to be sensitive to him, to Christ the one who brings us peace. And so a lot of times people read this text and they focus on John the Baptist's perspective, right? That you would, you would lose your head maybe or our persecution can be expected as a follower of Christ. This morning we're going to look at it through the lens of John, or through the lens of Herod and, and ask what it is that we can learn from a, a decaying conscience. So a little bit of background this morning for you. Mark uh, has been giving us, as we've been walking through his gospel, uh, he's been demonstrating to us that Jesus is God's son, that he's the son of God that came to save his people from their sins. He's demonstrated that to us in Jesus' teaching. Almost every week we've seen in some way the importance that Jesus places on teaching. We've seen the teaching of Christ um, as, 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 as having an authority unlike any teaching that they had heard in that day. Mark goes on to show us that Jesus' authority is not demonstrated only in his teaching, but in his actions. And we've just seen, as we've studied through Mark's gospel, three different weeks where Jesus speaks and, and nature, storms, obey him. We see where he speaks and demons have to obey him. We see where he can heal with someone merely touching his garment. And we can see that, that, it, that when he speaks, even death has to obey as he speaks and he raises a young girl from the dead. Jesus' authority is clear to us, and even though Mark has shown us the authority of Christ in all these different ways, we see a lot of different responses to Jesus. Some are accepting him. You see that in the 12 disciples, the apostles of Christ. They, they, they accept him, and they follow him with their lives, even to the point of death, they're following Christ. And yet, we see, on the other hand, rejection of Christ. The religious leaders of that day, the religious elite, reject him to the point that they want to devise a plan where they can destroy him. And then even outside of the religious elite, we see occasions on three occasions where Jesus is rejected by those that are closest to him. We see where he takes a, an initial trip to Nazareth, his hometown. And initially, folks are amazed by him. But as they hear him teach, they hear him preach, they become offended by him. And they actually, the text says that they want to throw him off a cliff. His own, his own people that are raised with him, folks that are close to him, his hometown uh, families. And then, then we see that despite this rejection, G Jesus goes about his ministry, goes back to Capernaum, and his own family, his relatives, mother and brothers, come from his hometown of Nazareth to try to kidnap him and take him back home so he won't hurt himself or, or ruin the family name because they think he's lost his mind. It's a rejection from his own relatives. And then despite both of those rejections, last week in Mark's gospel, we see that Jesus goes back to Nazareth, his hometown, because he desperately wants his family to know the truth, to know who he is, that he's God's Messiah. And we see it doesn't end well there again. They don't believe him. And the point for us and the point for the disciples was that as followers of Christ, you can expect to be rejected. It's not a truth people want to hear. They don't want to be confronted with their sin. 
And so on the hills of that lesson of rejection, Jesus sends the disciples out in pairs to teach and to preach the same message that Jesus has been preaching and teaching. And then this morning, as we get into our text, without so much as even a word of transition, Mark begins this morning in our, in our section, in our passage, by bringing up King Herod and John the Baptist. And you wonder, well, what, what is that about? The same John the Baptist that we saw all the way back in chapter 1 of Mark. And remember, he's not been traveling with Jesus. We haven't seen John the Baptist since chapter 1. He's not an apostle. He's not been traveling and, and, and doing ministry with Jesus. He was not one of, the one, one of the 12 that were sent out in pairs. So why now? Why has he come up again? What's he telling us about John the Baptist? Well, to see, I think we go back to Mark chapter 1. What did he last tell us about John? Where did we leave John the Baptist in our story as Mark's been walking us through the story of Christ? We go back to Mark chapter 1. Verse 14, that's the last thing we hear about John the Baptist until this morning. It says this in Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. So there it is. Last time we see John, he's in prison. That's why he's not been with Jesus. That's why we haven't seen him since chapter 1. He's been in prison. Well, why does Mark bring him up now? Why do we go back to John the Baptist's story now? Well, I think it's sort of a show and tell. Remember, Jesus has just, show, just shown them, he's just taught them that if you're going to be a follower of Christ, you can expect rejection and persecution as one of his followers. And now Mark is showing us this is the case with John the Baptist. What Jesus just taught us and then sent us out to preach the gospel is absolutely the case with John the Baptist. Well, what do we find out now five chapters later? We've seen that he's in prison in chapter 1. We haven't heard anything for five chapters. We get to chapter 6, and what do we find out is happening with John? Look at verse 14 of chapter 6. Some said that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. Wait a second, Mark. What are you doing? You're killing me here, Mark. The last thing you told me was that he was in jail. And then five chapters later, he comes up again, and you tell me he's dead. Like, what kind of storyteller are you? Like, that's, that's an incredible spoiler right there. I just thought he was in jail, and now you drop this bomb on me, telling me he's dead. Verse 16, you find out that Herod has beheaded him. And then in verse 17, it starts with, most translations, yours may say something different, but verse 17 starts with the word for. And so what you see is, this is an important word for us, as it transitions us in the text, it's almost as if Mark is saying, wait a second, I need to catch you up. I realize that I just gave you some information and you need the backstory. It's almost like watching a movie and it starts out and you're like, what's going on? And then it, then it gives you the backstory and the whole rest of the movie is working up to that point, right? Filling in the details and telling you how it went down. And that's what's going on here. And so let's go back, as Mark does, and let's find out the backstory. Find out what God is teaching us today, not necessarily through John's example of being a martyr, but through Herod's. What's Herod experiencing? What's happening to Herod's conscience as all of this is unfolding? So to do that, again, I know we've been doing background, but a little more background is necessary. You need to know who John the Baptist is. So let me fill you in there. John's birth is miraculous. Just like the virgin birth that we're celebrating right now and the coming of Christ, John's birth is miraculous as well. He's born uh, to the aged priest, Zechariah, and his wife, Elizabeth, long after, these folks are elderly, long after it would have been biologically possible for them to have kids. Along comes John. So he has a miraculous birth. He's uh, raised in the Nazarite tradition, which means he never cuts his hair. He never touches 
the dead, a dead body of an animal or, or a human. He, he never uh, drinks fermented drink. This is all the tradition of the Nazarite. Why? Because he's been set apart for the service of God. And, and as he grew, he grew in his understanding of the Word of God. He grew in his understanding of the Scriptures. But he also grew in his understanding of God. And as he does, he takes on even the attire of an Old Testament prophet. And so you see the description of him, not here, but in the earlier account that he's clothed in camel's hair. It's a strange way to, way to dress yourself. He has a leather belt and he eats grasshoppers and wild honey. So it's safe to say John's a strange character. If you were to walk upon him out in our members, not, not cut his hair, wearing camel's skin, he's eating grasshoppers and he's a strange guy. And as he's devoted himself to God in the wilderness and he, he's growing in his understanding of the scriptures, he has an intense sense of morality, an intense understanding of righteousness. He was a man of, of conscience. He was a man of moral courage. He stood up for what he believed. More importantly, he stood up for what God's word said. As, already, as Mark has already let it slip, one day he would lose his head for this, but he wouldn't lose his conscience. And John would burst out onto the national scene because of his preaching Again, he's preaching against sin. He's calling people to repent and in radical life transformation. He's preparing the way for the Messiah. He's preaching that Jesus is coming, the Messiah is coming. And that's really where we see him in Mark chapter 1. That's how he's tied into Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter, or Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, in Matthew's account of John, uh, we have John shouting at the Pharisees and, and Sadducees, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He calls them a bunch of snakes. This is a guy who pulls no punches. When it came to preaching the truth, when it came to calling people to repent, John didn't back up. He didn't cower. He didn't shirk down the, the fear of, of, of oppression or opposition. And so it's only a matter of time before he rubs shoulders with the political, or political elite in that day, the Herodians, specifically King Herod. Now, to give you a little bit of background on them, I know you're like, are all we going to do this morning is give, give background? We're going to get to the text, I promise, but we need to know who these folks are. The Herodians, a little bit about them. King Herod is a title that he claimed for himself. He actually demanded that the locals call him King Herod, yet it was a title that was never bestowed upon him by Rome. So King Herod uh, is actually named Herod Antipas or Antipas. And he was a tetrarch, which is just a big word that basically means he ruled one quarter or one fourth of his father's kingdom. Herod the Great had a huge kingdom. After his passing, it was broken up into four pieces. And our Herod this morning, Herod Antipas, ruled one quarter of that. And so he's ruling the area of Galilee where Jesus has been doing ministry, where all of these miracles are taking place. That's Herod Antipas's region. And so he requests the title of king, and Rome says, absolutely not. They firmly deny his request to be known as king, which is probably pretty embarrassing. But what we also learn about Herod, and we even see this in the text, is that uh, he was married to Herodias. Now, Herodias was the daughter of Herod's um, half-brother. So uh, you have Herod marrying his niece, if that's not sketchy enough, the plot thickens because what we find out is when Herod goes to Rome to marry Herodias, she's already married to his other half-brother, Philip. So now she's his sister-in-law. So Herod marries his niece, sister-in-law. I'm talking about a jacked-up fam family dynamic. Talk about Christmas at that household, right? <laughs> Nonetheless, Herod talks his niece into leaving her husband, his brother, and marrying him. 
And uh, this is not permitted. This is wrong. This is sin. According to Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, this, this can't be done. And so the straight-shooting preacher, John the Baptist, lets him have it. He tells him the truth. He, he wouldn't let it slide. He wouldn't just sleep, sweep it under the rug and act like this, this king, this ruler, was doing nothing wrong. And so in verse 18, you see that it says, John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. In the Greek, that idea of had been saying means he was saying it a lot. Every time he had an opportunity, he was letting Herod know about it. What you're doing is wrong. You can't marry your brother's wife. And uh, you can imagine the royal couple, right? Herod and Herodias. What in the world? Who does this redneck, camel-wearing hillbilly think he is? Telling me we can't be married? How's he to tell us what right and wrong is? So narrow-minded. Can't tell someone who to love. Yeah, that sounds familiar. So for personal reasons, verse 19, we find out that Herodias had a grudge against him. Meaning John had a grudge against John. For political reasons, Herod has John arrested and thrown into prison, which is where we left him in Mark chapter 1. That's the last thing we heard is that Mark is in, I mean that John is in prison. And so I give you these backgrounds because in John the Baptist and in Herod Antipas, we see uh, two extreme opposites. No better opposites in all the world. On the one hand, John is simple and he's serious. And on the other hand, uh, Herod is, is flamboyant and, uh, and ornate. John is righteous and Herod is in deep debauchery. John is uh, characterized by having immense moral courage and Herod is spineless and he uh, makes decisions based upon what others will think of him. John keeps his conscience but loses his head. And Herod takes John's head but loses his conscience. And so this morning, as much as this story is about the life and death of John the Baptist, for our purposes, and what I think the text is demonstrating to us this morning, is it's just as much about the life and death of, John, of Herod's conscience. And I think we'll see that. And this unfolding that we see, we observe, sadly, the th same thing repeated in our world and our day. And we see this every day. It may not always end with a beheading may not always end with someone losing their head physically. But so many times today we sadly see this, that, that folks have their consciences just desensitized to the things of God. No more conviction about sin. No more conviction about what's wrong or right. And this morning, the decaying of a conscience, the, the opposite of peace, should be a reminder to us as we celebrate the one who brings true and eternal peace. And so this morning, let's observe in the text Four stages or four movements of a decaying conscience. Four stages of a decaying conscience. Number one, the stirring of a conscience. The stirring of a conscience. Look at verse 19 and 20. Now remember, John uh, has uh, been placed in Herod's palace fortress dungeon. He's in prison beneath uh, Herod's mansion, if you will. And yet, though they're in those conditions, something remarkable happens. An interesting relationship develops between uh, John and Herod, of all people. You see this in verses 19 and 20. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So when the fancy-robed ruler meets the camel-haired prophet, there's this showdown. There's this exchange between them. And John holds nothing back, right? As he confronts Herod, even in prison, he has opportunities to have conversation with him. He holds nothing back. 
And as a result, the king, though he had all the cards, though everything was in his hand, he had the upper hand here, he had every advantage, the Bible says that Herod feared John. Why would the ruler fear the preacher? Why would the one who had all the authority and power be afraid of the guy who's locked behind bars? Well, friends, goodness is terrifying to evil. There's a famous quote that's anonymous in its source. It says this, the truth will make you free, but at first it'll make you miserable. I think this is what's going on in Herod's life. King Herod stood at a crossroads. He stood at a point, and the reality is, is that, that John is preaching to him his sin, and in, in, in this uncomfortable fear that he has as a result of knowing the truth that John is sharing with him. That John is sharing the truth, and as he, as he does, it, it makes him uncomfortable, but he listens. He's perplexed. He has fear out of what John's saying, but he, he listens gladly, the text says. I think it's the same today. Many people who eventually come to faith in Christ were at first one time afraid of an experience with God. Maybe they were confronted with righteousness. Maybe they read the Bible and saw the righteousness of Christ, saw a man who was good and perfect, and yet he gave his life on a cross for sinners. Maybe they saw a friend or a faithful church member that shared the truth with them, and for a moment they see their sin, and they glimpse the righteousness of Christ, and they see that contrast between Christ's perfect righteousness and their unrighteousness, their sin, and it's a fearful thing. And they're immediately repulsed by it. They don't want anything to do with it. But then the Spirit begins to work in their hearts drawing them to Christ, demonstrating the truth of the Word of God, and then they enter into this gracious discomfort, right? I think that's the only way to describe it. You're discomforted. You don't want your sin. You don't like your sin. And that in itself is the grace of God to the point that the Spirit draws them to Christ, leads them to the one who can forgive that unrighteousness. Herod may have listened to John here, partly because he felt like listening to him would somehow excuse his debauchery. Right? Like there's some kind of penance being done as he goes down to the dungeon to have these conversations with John. I think similarly today, some people think they're good Christians because they come to a church service and listen to the truth of God's word. Or maybe they attend a Bible study where they hear the truths of God's word and they give mental assent to it. As if that's enough. Very likely John is hearing the preaching, uh, or Herod's hearing the preaching here of John and he, he wants to live better. He wants to live better. He wants to live a better life. Maybe through this strange and budding relationship, Herod's making some attempts at self-reformation, making some attempts at moral reform. Maybe he put up a calendar on the wall, a a good deed for the day calendar, so that he can check off, man, I'm doing better. Or maybe he decided, you know, I I could be a better father, and maybe he comes home from work as a ruler, and he spends some time on the floor with his kids playing because he wants to be a better dad. Or, Or maybe he gives some money to a beggar on the side of the road thinking, you know, John's been this convicting thing that I'm having this relationship with John. Whatever the case, he returns again and again to John while he's in prison, and John preaches to him the truth. As hard and as brash as it may be to hear, he preaches the truth to him, and Herod just takes it on the chin, and he's pleased by it. And so in Matthew's version of this story, in Matthew's gospel, chapter 14, verse 5, it tells us that at times even Herod wanted to kill him. And yet, in Mark 6, where we're at today, verse 20, it says that he protected him from his murderous wife. It says that he, was, uh, he, he feared John in verse 20. It says that he was perplexed by John in verse 20. And it says in verse 20 that he was, he was glad to hear him. And so you have all these emotions, all these mixed feelings towards John. 
And it appears, friends, that for a moment, Herod is having his conscience stirred. That for a brief moment, his conscience is coming alive. It seems that there's some stirring going on in him where he's wrestling with the truth. But unfortunately, it wouldn't remain that, that way. It wouldn't stay that way. Which leads us to our second point, the violation of a conscience. Look at verses 21 through 25. Now remember Herodias, the wife, wanting to destroy John for calling out her love affair. She sees an opportunity here in these verses and she makes a move. Look at verse 21. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and all the leading men of Galilee. Now, this type of birthday celebration would have been common for the Herodians, something they would have done often. Herodias would have known exactly what to expect as a woman married in this type of a position. What she would find would be a a bunch of inebriated men drinking, and the more they, they drank, the drunker they got the more increasingly sensual and nasty they would get. So at the end of the night, they would almost be demanding for female entertainment. And so normally this type of sexual dancing would have been done by paid court dancers, by hired prostitutes. But on this occasion, Herodias has other plans. Look at verse 22. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. Friends, a dance like this from royalty, instead of the hired prostitutes, this was unheard of. This was unprecedented that uh, the, the, the king's stepdaughter would come in and do this. And so Herod, his drunken buddies, would have been very, very pleased by this, the text says, even if it was his stepdaughter and niece. Uh, verse 22 continues. The king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I'll give it to you. So the, the tipsy king or wannabe king pipes up with boisterous pride and says, whatever you want, girl, you name your price. As long as you keep dancing like this, I'll give you whatever you want. I'm powerful enough to make it happen for you. You just name whatever it is that you want. Verse 23, and he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I'll give to you up to half of my kingdom. And you can just imagine his buddies at the celebration being impressed at a boy, Herod. You give her what she wants, man. You, you keep her dancing. Give her whatever it takes to keep her dancing. And they begin to talk amongst themselves. Well, what do you think she's going to want? What do, you think, what do you think this girl's going to want? Maybe a new chariot and some handsome horses to pull it. Or maybe a, a wardrobe imported from Rome. All the while, Herodias, you can just imagine, is sitting back, smiling, because her evil plan is falling right into place. Verse 24. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked him, saying, I want, to, I, want you to, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. So worse even than what Herodias was asking for. Herodias wanted John the Baptist dead. The spoiled daughter who, let's be clear, is being used by her evil mother here, adds to it, on a platter. She wanted it to be entertaining. She wanted some type of aesthetic. She wanted something that would be visually pleasing. And so she adds this grotesque image to it, like mother, like daughter. And you can just picture the room getting deathly quiet. As everybody kind of looks around and wonders, what's Herod going to do? What's he going to do at this request? Will he, will he give her this? Will he make good on his promise? He just, he just said anything she wanted. Is, she, is he really going to do that? Is he going to cash in on what he said? 
You can imagine Herod's mind racing, right? This? This is what she wants? you got to be kidding me. This doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. Why would this young girl have something against John the Baptist? Why would she want his head? This, this doesn't make sense. Something, must, something else must be going on here. Wait a minute. This is my scheming wife. This is Herodias. Herodias put her up to this. Danny Aiken in his commentary says that this is sin on steroids. That in this story we have sex, lies, drunkenness, murder, even the prostitution of someone's own daughter. Verse 26, it says the king was exceedingly sad or exceedingly sorry. This is genuine grief. The Greek phrase that's used here, the original language that this was written in, this phrase is only used one other time in the New Testament. It was to describe Jesus' pain in the Garden of Gethsemane. The king was exceedingly sorry. And so we see him sliding the decaying of Herod's conscience went, went from being stirred, where it's, it's almost like there's a spark, there's a stirring in his conscience, to now he's being torn into two. His conscience is being ripped to shreds. On the one hand, John is a good man, and even Herod could see that he's a holy guy, he's a righteous guy. And in this weird relationship that's formed between them, Herod knows that it's actually only benefited him that Herod's been in prison. He's grown. He's, he's been perplexed by this guy that's down there telling him about his own sin. At the same time, his wife has tricked him. He knows he's been deceived, duped by his own wife. Wessel, in his commentary, says this. Herodias felt that the only place where her marriage certificate could be safely written was on the back of the death warrant for John the Baptist. She tricked him. She'd done whatever she needed to do to make sure that her ends were accomplished. Herod knew this. On the other hand, what is he going to do? What, is his, what, is his friend, what are his friends going to think? What would the imperial court in Rome think when they find out that one of the tetrarchs is losing control down in Galilee? That he can't even cash in on his promises? What are they going to think of him? He'd be the laughingstock of all of Rome. They've already denied his kingship. And now this? There's only one choice. Verse 26. Because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. Friends, what a tragedy. Not that John is dead, because friends, to, to be dead in this world is to be alive with Christ, to be with the Father in glory. And so friends, the moment that happened, Herod is with the Father in paradise. And so it's not a tragedy for Herod, but what a tragedy for Herod, uh, I mean for John, but it is a tragedy for Herod's conscience. That at once it, show, it showed signs or sparks of life and now Nothing. He'd stifled the conscience. He'd stifled any hope or any opportunity for change because of fear of what others would think of him. Is that not the case today with many people? How many people today, maybe even in this room, have had their consciences sparked? There's, there's been a, a, an opportunity. There's been ideas change in their hearts. There's been an awareness of eternal things. There's been an awareness of their own sin, yet out of fear of what a friend will think or what a spouse will think, what family members will think, they bury it all. Some people spend their entire lives making all their decisions based on what other people will think of them. Politicians making decisions that will affect our nation based on what the party leaders are going to think. Businessmen making decisions based on what their bosses are going to think so that they can climb the corporate ladder. 
Students in classrooms that remain silent because they're afraid of what their peers in the desk next to them may say. Friends, listen. Kids, listen to me. Life is too short. And eternity is too long to make decisions based on what your friends may say. Stand up for your faith. More people than we would ever want to realize or ever want to recognize have forfeited eternity because they've been afraid of what people may think. Will you leave those thoughts behind this morning and call on Christ? Well, that's not where the decay of Herod's conscience ends. The text continues. But to follow the rest of the story, we have to skip back up to verses 14, and six, 14 through 16. Remember, I told you that, that Mark's been giving us the backstory, right? He's been catching us up to what happened with John the Baptist. But to get the rest of Herod's journey, you go back up to verses 14 through 16, the way that this whole transition started. And you see the agonizing of a conscience. We've seen the stirring of a conscience. We've seen this conscience being ripped and torn into two. The violation of a conscience now on Our third point, we see the agonizing of a conscience. Look at verses 14 through 16. So while all this drama is unfolding with John, right? So remember, Mark's been giving us the backstory. While all this has been happening with John, he's in prison, his head's being brought on a platter, all of that's been unfolding with Herod and Herodias. Meanwhile, Jesus' ministry's been flourishing. Everything we've been studying up to this point, the five chapters in between, all that's been going on. So we've seen Jesus' authority being made known. We've seen the the disciples sent out into six teams, groups of two, to proclaim the message of Christ. And so all of that has brought attention. And the fame of Christ has grown exponentially during this time. And so finally, news of Jesus, his miracles, his authority, his teaching, has reached the palace. It's reached Herod's house. And that's how verse 14 starts. King Herod heard of it. For Jesus' name had become known. And some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. So you have Herod here. He hears about Jesus, right? Additionally, Herod hears what all these folks are saying about Jesus, that he's John the Baptist raised that, that, he's, that he's doing all these miracles. He's hearing that he's Elijah or one of these prophets, one of these prophets of old. And then Herod suddenly speaks up, stops all this speculation in its tracks, right? Note that, that in this, 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 this speech that Herod gives, he doesn't have an answer. He doesn't even speculate about who he thinks Jesus is. He, he doesn't have a firm and clear uh, understanding. And the part that is most important for us in the text, who Jesus is, remember that's why Mark's writing, Herod doesn't even care. He's not even concerned with that. Something else is on Herod's mind. His conscience has just been inflamed when he hears the name John the Baptist and the claim that he's alive, right? See, the language here is graphic in the, in the Greek, in the original language that this was written in. The I in this phrase the John whom I beheaded, it's emphatic. He's shouting it. And it's almost as if he's, he's pounding something and shouting it over and over and over. I am the one. I, I. Herod, I am the one that did it. I am the one that killed John the Baptist. You see, the picture that we get is, is of Herod like Lady Macbeth, uh, washing and repeatedly washing her hands, hoping that the bloody spot, spot will leave. This is Herod. Herod had done something evil, and he desperately wanted to make it happen as if it had never uh, happened. He wanted to sweep it under the rug and forget it. He wanted his conscience to leave him alone. And so he wanted this incident with John to, to go away as if it had never happened, but he couldn't. I think we're there at some point in our lives. 
Every one of us. We've done things. We've had uh, behaviors or attitudes. We've had actions that we desperately wish that we could make go away as if they had never happened. And then in some random event, maybe a song comes on the radio, maybe uh, a conversation with someone, somebody that knew you in your past, something brings up all of that past behavior to the forefront of our memories. And that's meant to bring us to repentance. It's meant to bring us to our knees and to confess that sin, seek the forgiveness of Christ. And yet, like Herod, so many of us push it away. We deny it. We want it to go back under the rug where we thought we had suppressed it. We don't want to think about it. Herod is frightened, but it doesn't lead him to faith and repentance. Instead, it leads him to further rejection and a hardness of heart. The only way those things can be made right is in Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul says, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. And this newness includes our conscience. This newness that comes in Christ as we're created in him and a new create, creation in Christ, it comes with a new conscience that he would, he would lead us to himself. We've, he's forgiven our sins. He's cast them as far as the east is from the west, and he remembers them no more. And yet with Herod, we see this decaying of his conscience. And he just wants it to go away. He doesn't want to think about it. He doesn't want to remember it. And ultimately leads to the death of his conscience, which ultimately leads to the death of his soul. Which leads to our fourth point and kind of our final snapshot that we get of Herod. Our fourth point, the death of a conscience. And you may say, well, Matt, we're finished with the, the section we read. We don't have any more verses. Well, to get the rest of Herod's story, you have to go to Luke 23. You see, this is not the last thing we hear about here. This isn't the end of his story as far as the biblical record is concerned. The last mention, the last recorded episode that we have with Herod is in Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, it depicts a chilling reality. Luke chapter 23 verse 6 through 12 is really the whole, the whole story. But a bit of background because I know we're jumping over to Luke. So what's going on where we're jumping over to? It's the end of Jesus' life on earth. Jesus' ministry is complete. They've arrested him. They've brought him through a joke of a trial where they've led him from religious court to civic or civil court. And as they've done that, they've taken Jesus from Pilate now to Herod, the man with the dead conscience. The same Herod that's heard about Jesus on numerous occasions. He's heard about what he's done. His hearing goes all the way back to Mark chapter 6 that we just read where he's hearing all these explanations for who Jesus is. Now Jesus is standing before this Herod. With a dead conscience. In Dr. Luke, in his gospel, chapter 23, we'll read verses 8 through 11. We see this unfolding. It says this, When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. For he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him. And he was hoping to see some sign done by him. And so he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. And the chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt. And mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, sent him back to Pilate. What a sad, sad, sad story. That Herod merely wanted to see Jesus because he had heard so much about him. His reputation, his popularity had grown to the point that Herod was interested in seeing him. He wanted to see if the rumors were true. But then in verse 8 it says that Herod was hoping to see some sign done by him. Herod simply wanted to be entertained. He wanted some magician to come and amuse him with these signs and these marvelous wonders that he's been doing. There's no sign of reverence. There's no spiritual conviction. There's no desire to honor Christ or to listen to Jesus. 
And what we see in Luke's description is a man standing face to face, eyeball to eyeball with the creator of the world, and he felt nothing. He saw nothing. And friends, the more sad reality, the sadder reality in this text is that looking back in his eyes, Jesus saw nothing in him. A dead conscience. A soul that would soon be dead. What about today? What about in our world? Is it possible, friends, that this Christmas that we could be standing face to face with Christ, the claims of the Bible, face to face with the the truth of why we celebrate Christmas, that a Prince of Peace was born? We could be standing face to face with that reality. We could be standing face to face with that and still wanting to squash the repeated warnings of the Bible. The repeated convictions of our conscience, the, the, the drawing of Christ where he's identified our sin for us, the word of God that's demonstrated who Jesus is. We could be standing face to face with that reality, with that truth, and it's as if there's nothing. There's no stirring. There's nothing. Yes, friends, the primary message here is for unbelievers that this morning hear the claims of Christ, hear the truth of the word of God and see Christ. Don't keep ignoring him, but surrender to him. Confess your sins to him and ask for forgiveness and make this Christmas the most important and, and the happiest Christmas you'll ever experience as you give your life to this one who is the Prince of Peace. But friends, there's also a message here for us as believers. Don't neglect the Spirit. If the Holy Spirit has identified your sin for you this morning, if he's shown you where you have areas in your life that are unconfessed or are unsurrendered to Christ, give them to him. Don't this morning become desensitized to the word of God because you're conscious the Holy Spirit is testifying to you and you're ignoring it. Friends, this morning for every one of us in this room, Let's surrender to this one who is the Prince of Peace. Yes, he came as a baby born in a manger, but he grew up in, in holiness and it was perfect and he fulfilled the law in every way and he gave his life so that we can have true peace for all eternity in him. Let's worship him this Christmas season. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you this morning for Christ who came as a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. Magana, who the testimony of Scripture says is the one who brings all peace, the one who reconciles us to the Father. Help us this morning to see John the Baptist and his example of what it looks like to have the opposite of peace, a decaying conscience. God, help us to see Herod's example and want nothing of it. Help us this morning by your grace and through your spirit to surrender to you, to yield our lives to you. We give you this time as we sing, Father, as we respond. I pray the truth of this word that we've studied, this text that we've read, we seared into our hearts. Help this Christmas for every one of us, but especially if there's someone this morning that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior. Help this Christmas to be the most incredible Christmas because their life is surrendered and yielded to you. Help us to walk in faith and obedience this morning to your word. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.